Well, I just remember what I missed. One of the things I missed most about our time in Kazakhstan is um, praying with Marcus. It was a joy just to um, go to the Lord daily, a couple times a day, and to hear him pray to God and commune with the Lord. Uh, just hearing him pray reminded me of the precious times we had. Thank you, Marcus, for praying for all of us. And thank you, Denise, for your testimony. Just really um, God-centered, God-honoring, Christ-exalting testimony. And we thank God for you and your family. And uh, just receiving your email this week about your heart to serve the church and your desire for you and your husband to be ministering. It's a thrill to my heart. And look forward to as many years of, of growing and serving and um, loving our Lord together. Well, I have just one brief announcement again. This is a special Sunday. It is Communion Sunday. Uh, following an extended time of fellowship, we will have um, a time of breaking of the elements, breaking of bread, and drinking of the cup together with believers. If you are a first-time visitor or if you've never uh, attended our communion service at Cornerstone, we ask that you meet with our welcoming ministry staff members. They'll be to my right after the service. Um, we believe that communion is for believers only. And if you are a professing believer, follower of our Lord Jesus Christ, we would love to extend our right hand of fellowship and welcome you to our um, communion of the saints. We ask only that you have a clear profession of uh, faith in Christ, a clear testimony, and that you affirm just the cardinal doctrines, the basic biblical doctrines of the Christian faith. If you do those things, we would love to come together this afternoon and break bread together. Well, we're back in our study in the Gospel of John. Our text that was read is verses 20 through 30. But we will focus on just one verse. Um, focus on, I want to make sure I get it right, focus on verse 28. And we do this time to time, do we not? Sometimes I cover maybe a whole chapter in one sermon. Uh, sometimes I cover several passages. But once in a while, we come upon a verse so packed with truth, just so jugular in its meaning, that we have to stop and pause and really restrain ourselves from moving on to focus on this, on a specific verse in Scripture. We've done this many times, therefore I don't know how long it will take for us to get through the Gospel of John. Um, I just read this week that D. Martin Lloyd-Jones took 14 years to get to the uh, Book of Romans. Now that's a study, 14 years in one book. And he still he finished pastoring there at that church, but um, now I feel pressed when we come upon such a verse to stop and to take a detailed look upon its truths that, that are contained within. And I want to begin by telling all of you that our study this morning is not was not a sole effort; it is the result of a joint venture. Three men have come together, partnered together for our study this morning. Of the three men, I will readily acknowledge that I have done the least amount of work, so I should get the least amount of acknowledgement. Really, the bulk of the work for our study this morning was done by the late, great Pastor Jonathan Edwards. 
1726, he wrote a book called The End for Which God Created the World. The End for Which God Created the World. It is available free on the internet. You can Google it and you can read it for yourself. It is indeed a masterful treatise on the glory of God as the ultimate end of all things. And reading this book this week has been uh, very profitable for my soul. As I was reading his words, reading his thoughts, I said to myself, these thoughts are too lofty for me. They are beyond my abilities. I was thankful to God that God, the Holy Spirit, moved Pastor Edward's heart to write down his thoughts on paper and that it was preserved for several hundred years that I might read it this week, that I might share his deep insight into the Word of God, that I might share his glorious vision of God. It is in this book that he wrote this, this sentence, quote, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Now, that sounds familiar because the second pastor that's involved in our study this morning is, of course, John Piper. Um, pastor Edwards laid the foundation and Piper built the house on it. He wrote the book, God's Passion for His Glory. And the first part of the book is a biography of Edwards. And the second part is the book itself. And that book is actually on sale at our book, book table after service. I think there's only one copy, right, Rex? Only one copy, so as soon as someone says, Amen, you run, run to the book table and pick up that book. I was talking to uh, Jason's wife, um, Jane, this, yesterday at women's prayer meeting at our home, and she was telling me how that book changed her life. She read that book about three years ago, and it transformed her view of God, her Christianity. And so two of us recommended highly well, Pastor Piper paraphrased Edwards and he wrote, The chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. So Edwards laid the foundation. Piper built the house. My contribution is I put the curtains up. Right? <laughs> That's my contribution. So three of us have come together to um, study this awe-inspiring topic of God's passion for His own glory. Now, to begin our study, I just want to um, talk to you about a syndrome that is prevalent in America today, and a syndrome that is prevalent, that has infected even the church of Jesus Christ. Now, you have heard me qu uh, quote this man several times, Dennis Prager. Have you heard, anybody, raise your hands if you heard of Dennis Prager. He's got a show on 870, um, 9 a.m. to 12. It's worth listening to. He's not a Christian, conservative Jew, but he is worth listening to. And the opening chapter of his book, think a second time, the opening chapter is titled, The Missing Tile Syndrome. The Missing Tile Syndrome, a syndrome that is pervasive in American culture and that has infected the church as well. And he writes about the tendency that all people have to focus on what is missing from their lives. Everyone 
is obsessed, infatuated, focused on not the things they have, but on the things or the thing that is missing from their lives. And he calls it a missing tile syndrome. So it, our room helps us with this illustration. We have a room that is surrounded by tiles. Above the bricks are white tiles placed in the wall. Now, if you're the kind of person that during a sermon, your eyes wander, and you look at this wall, and your eyes will inevitably focus on the tile that is missing. Instead of focusing on all the tiles that are present, you'll look at the one and say, wow, that one tile is missing, and be focused on that. Well, everyone is infected by this syndrome. They say, if I had this one thing, I would be happy. I am unfulfilled today. I am unsatisfied. I am discouraged. I am depressed. And we can name the thing. If I only had this one thing, I would be happy. In fact, draw a box in your mind and place in that one box that one thing in your life that is missing, that is causing you this morning to be so unsatisfied. Everyone. Well, professing Christians are not, are also not immune from this syndrome. We all know many Christians who are perpetually unhappy. That's the running theme of their lives. Complaints flow easily from their lips. They are constantly fretting, worrying, complaining about something that is missing from their lives and they feel completely justified in their unhappiness. They feel really vindicated, justified for their lack of satisfaction in life. Maybe they're lacking a friend. They don't have someone who will come alongside them and encourage them and run the race with them. They're lacking the right kind of fellowship. Maybe they're lacking the right kind of ministry. Or maybe they're lonely and they say, well, I don't have a boyfriend. So that, that hinders me. That makes me incapable of happiness because I don't have a boyfriend. Or I don't have a girlfriend. I'm lacking a husband or wife. Or maybe you are married and you're unsatisfied because, well, my husband is not the man that he ought to be. He, he doesn't love me as I should. Or my wife, she's not the kind of woman that, that I desire. She, she doesn't respect me as I, as I should. Or I have my children. I have the wrong kind of children. The wrong kind of child. Or I have the wrong gender. I only have girls and I want a boy. Or I have boys and I want a girl. Or I feel unsatisfied because I have the wrong kind of parents, or wrong kind of siblings, wrong kind of job, wrong kind of career. I go to a wrong school. I don't have a good enough job, good enough pay. My boss doesn't appreciate me. My friends are loyal, and on and on and on and on it goes. Constantly going down this path of focusing on the missing tile. Right? Well, that is wrong. that's a wrong diagnosis, and that is why you're looking for a wrong cure. To look for something that is missing in your life, on this earth, and to think that anything on this earth 
will give you true happiness, lasting joy. It's a wrong diagnosis, and therefore you're looking for a wrong cure. Well, I'm here this morning to tell my own heart and to tell all of you what is truly missing from our lives. You know what is missing? The thing that is missing is a God-centered, soul-satisfying, sin-destroying knowledge and delight of God. A God-centered, soul-satisfying, sin-destroying knowledge and delight of God. This is what is missing in our lives. A right understanding of God and the corresponding delight of God. That is the major weakness of Christians today. The major weakness of the church today is we don't know God. We know everything else. But we do not know that which is most important. A heartfelt, soul-satisfying understanding and knowledging of God. And that is why we do not cherish Him. We do not relish, savor, and delight in God. Our unhappiness as Christians is not linked to our lives, is not linked to our relationships, not to our job, not to our income, not what we don't have. Our unhappiness as Christians is directly linked to our lack of understanding of God and our lack of obedience to be satisfied in God. Here is the first of many quotes by Pastor Edwards. He wrote, quote, The enjoyment of God, of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to he- heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives or children or the company of earthly friends are but shadows. God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the ocean. Puritan pastor John Flavel wrote, The soul is exceedingly ravished when it first looks on the beauty of God. It is never weary of Him. Christ is the very essence of all delights and pleasures, the very soul and substance of all of them. As all the rivers are gathered into the ocean, which is the meeting place of all the waters in the world, so Christ is that ocean in which all true delights and pleasures meet. End quote. That is why God inspired Jeremiah to write in Jeremiah 9.23, Because money doesn't bring happiness. If you're strong, don't glory in your strength as if that brings satisfaction or fulfillment in life. If you're smart, if you're wise, don't glory in that. There is no eternal value in wisdom. A man should boast, a man should glory in only one thing. That he understands and knows me, that I am Yahweh who exercises kindness justice and righteousness on earth, for in these things I delight. That's the boast. That's the sole glory of the Christian. Because that is our heart's delight. That is our joy. That is what brings us ever-increasing satisfaction in life. That is why it is said of the Puritans that they discovered 
the God of the Bible, and it was so sweet to them. It was so nourishing to their souls that they never got over it. That they were stuck on the doctrine of God. That they couldn't continue, progress in their study of other doctrines because they were so enamored with their discovery of the beautiful God of the Scriptures. J.I. Packer wrote in his book, Knowing God, quote, What were we made for? To know God. What aim should we set ourselves in life to know God? What is the eternal life that Jesus gives? The knowledge of God. John 17.3 What is the best thing in life? What is the thing that brings more joy, more delight, more contentment than anything else? He rightly says, the knowledge of God. Well, that is our, our pursuit this morning. You know, I want to lead all of you this morning into, into a pursuit of the knowledge of God. And we want to go, well, other men have gone before. I mean, it's not, we're, the, we're not the first ones there. But we want to go and we want to plumb the depths of the heart of God. I mean, we don't want to scratch the surface. We want to dig as far as we can into the core essence of God's pursuit himself. What is God's pursuit? What is God's passion? What is God's motivation? Remember a few weeks ago, we discovered the passion of Christ, not the Latin word, the sufferings of Christ, but the zeal of Christ, the motivation of Christ. Remember in John 12, Christ says, 27, Now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But it is for this purpose I have come to this hour. He is, this is, Palm Sunday, he is five days removed from the cross. He understands that within five days that God will judge him and the wrath of God will come upon Christ and he will become sin, a cursed man on the cross and that God will forsake his only son and he will be utterly left desperate, alone on the cross. And when Christ contemplates that judgment, he shudders in his heart. There is a seismos, an earthquake in his heart and his heart is agitated. His soul is troubled and he steps back and he says, what should I say, Father, save me from this hour? Save me from this death? He says, no. This is why I've come. And then he responds by saying, Father, glorify your name. And by that one statement, we discover the heart of Christ. That what drove him, his zeal, his commitment, his passion, was the glory of the Father's name. That is why he died. That is why he was incarnate. That is why he did everything in his ministry. That is why he went to the cross and died. It was for the glory of the Father. And so that, again, Jesus died for God. Jesus died for God. Christ's ultimate end in his life and ministry was the glory of God. The chief and ultimate end that governed the life of Christ was the glory of his Father. That is why Hebrews 12.2 says, It was for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. That doesn't make sense. How can Christ experience joy in going to the cross? It's an instrument of death, an instrument of torture, an instrument of humiliation. How How can the writer of Hebrews put the word joy? Well, because though Christ was suffering eternally, in his heart, in the depths of his heart, 
there was sweet joy because he was pursuing the glory of God. He was doing it for the glory of God's name. Well, that was two weeks ago. We discovered the heart of Christ. Well, today we want to, we want to study what is the passion of God? What is God's passion? What was God's motivation for sending the Son? Right. You know, what makes God tick? Why does God exist? What is God's motivation? What is the purpose of God? What is the chief end of God? Now, there are three proposals concerning God's motivation. First one is the most popular verse in Christianity in the past 50 years. You go to a baseball or a football or a basketball game, and you will see a sign with this verse on it, John 3.16. And they say God's purpose is He loves the world. So everything He does, He does it for us. Right? We are the end, we are the chief purpose of God's existence. His love for us is the constraining motivation for all that He does. That's first proposal. Second proposal is Romans 5.8. God's love for the elect. Yes, God loves the world, but that is common grace love. Like Matthew 5 love. What constrains Him is God demonstrates His love for us, the believers, and that Christ died for us. God's love for the elect constrains Him. That's His chief motivation. The third, motiv- third proposal is, it's God's love for His Son, Jesus Christ. Right? Audibly, Christ, God said on Matthew 4, This is my Son, my beloved Son, whom I love. Listen to Him. So God's ultimate end, ultimate purpose for His his existence is His love for His Son. Well, all these are motivations of God. All these are the ends and purposes of God. But I propose to you this morning that these are all subordinate ends. These are all secondary purposes. These are all secondary purposes. God's overriding, ultimate purpose, ultimate end, is found in verse 28. Second part of verse 28. Christ says, Father, glorify your name. I'm going to go to the cross with joy that your name might be exalted, your name might be lifted up. And God the Father, He cannot contain Himself. Jesus is the Logos of God. He is the perfect radiance of God's glory. Right? When Philip says, show me the Father, Christ says, show me the Father, when you see me, you see the Father. John 16. So Christ is the perfect representation of the mind of God. So when Christ speaks, God is speaking. But when Christ says, Father, glorify your name, God the Father cannot contain Himself. A thunderous, audible voice responds to Christ's prayer. And God the Father declares, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The Father's response tells us that likewise with Christ, that our God is passionate about the glory of His own name. Reveals to us His own commitment to magnify, exalt, and revere His own name. 
The meaning is that God has glorified His name in all that Christ has done. And He will glorify His name again by Jesus' death. Turn with me to Philippians 2, 6-11. I ask you to keep your Bibles handy because there are many verses that I want to look, look at together to really defend this position. To, to convince as many as possible, not by my own words, but the, but the Bible's words, <coughs> that God's passionate, His ultimate end is His own glory. Philippians 2, 6-11 shows us that from Jesus' incarnation all the way through His crucifixion, resurrection, exaltation was for one purpose, the glory of God the Father. Verse 6, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but He made Himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Verses 6 through that last word that I read is one complete package of Christ's incarnation all the way to His exaltation. Now, what is the purpose of all of this? To the glory of God, the Father. To the glory of God, the Father. Jonathan Edwards wrote, It appears that all that is ever spoken of in the Scriptures as an ultimate end of God's works is included in that one phrase, the glory of God. In the creature's knowing, esteeming, loving, rejoicing in, and praising God, the glory of God is both exhibited and acknowledged. His fullness is received and returned. The beams of God's glory come from God, and they are something of God, and they are returned back again to their original by the creatures, so that the whole is of God. And in God and to God, He is the beginning, He is the middle, and the end. End quote. God does all things for His glory, for the glory of His name. Those two phrases are synonymous. You look at the scriptures, and they are alike. They are used interchangeably. He does all things for this one purpose. All others are subordinate ends. All others are secondary purposes to this one all-encompassing passion of God for His own glory. Romans 11:36. Paul closes his great treatise on God's election and sovereignty over Israel and the Gentiles. <coughs> and he closes this chapter by saying, For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. Turn to Revelation 4.11. Revelation 4.11. Here is uh, the kingdom of God 
Christ seated at the throne, the elders and the angels surround the throne of God, and they declare, 4.11, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. All of it. Everything that God has done, God is doing, God will do. The sole purpose of His existence, His relationships with man, was all for this one purpose, to exalt His name. Now you go back to uh, the Old Testament. And I'll just read these verses. Um, God delivering Israel from Egypt. Exodus 7.5 God says, I did this so that you might know that I am Yahweh. That you might know my name. Psalm 106, verse 8 God saved them for His name's sake. For the sake of His name. Not because Israel was so lovable, because they were so precious or so worthy. God delivered Israel from Egypt because of His own name's sake. Not only that, Israel's redemption from their Babylonian captivity, after they were, they were captive in Babylon for 70 years, God rescued them out and brought them back to the land of Israel. Now why did God do that? Isaiah 48. Um, please turn with me to, to those verses. Isaiah 48, 9 and 11. This is what God says to the prophet Isaiah. For my own name's sake, I delay my wrath. For my own name's sake. For the sake of my praise, I hold it back from you, so as not to cut you off. Verse 11. For my own sake, for my own sake I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another. And that was a plea of Daniel in Daniel 9.19. God, hear and act. God, do not delay. Forgive. Rescue us. Why? Because we bear your name. If we are destroyed, your name will be rejected. If we are rescued, your name will be exalted for the sake of your own name. Save us. Not only that, salvation of the elect. Not just in the Old Testament, but New Testament. Our salvation was not for us. Was not merely for our benefit. God saved us for His own benefit. 1 John 2.12 I'm writing to you because your sins are forgiven you for His name's sake. First Timothy 1, 14-17. Well, let's turn there. If you remember, I preached on this passage at our past retreat. First Timothy 1, 14-17. Here is Paul's testimony. And he declares at the end the purpose of his salvation. Verse 14, the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. 
But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display His unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on Him and receive eternal life. Verses 14 through 16 are all subordinate purposes. Yes, God showed grace to Paul. Yes, he was the worst of sinners and God saved him. Yes, God forgave Paul of his sins. Yes, God used Paul as an example for what God will do with all who believe in him. But that's not the final end. The chief end of Paul's salvation and the salvation of the elect is verse 17. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God... Be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Yes, it is true. God loves the world. John 3.16 Yes, it is true. Romans 5.8 God loves the elect. Yes, it is true. Matthew 4 God loves His Son. But what is more true, the greatest truth, is that God loves His own glory. That God does all things for his own name's sake. One more chapter. Turn with me to Ephesians 1. Just in case there are one or two of you out there not convinced. Let's turn to Ephesians 1 and see the whole redemptive history that Paul outlines. From predestination, adoption, salvation, sanctification. How that's all for the glory of God. Ephesians 1, 4-6 For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love He predestined us to be adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will. <coughs> Why? To the praise of His glorious grace. Go down to verse 11. In Him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will, in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be, what? For the praise of His glory. Go down to verse 13. You are also included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed you are marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possessions. Why? To the praise of His glory. All of it. All the mighty acts of God. The deliverance of Israel from Egypt by Moses. The restoration of Israel from their exile in Babylon. The death of Christ. The salvation of the elect. The sanctification of the elect. And the glorification of His people. And even God Himself. Everything. They are all united for one purpose, for one end. And that's the glory of God. Now, Edward spends like 40 pages on defining glory. He goes to the Hebrew word kabod, and then he looks at the verb kavod, and the noun, I don't remember the word, and then the Greek word doxa, and so he spends 40 pages on that. I'm going to spend three sentences to define glory, because I'm going to lose lose myself if I go through that 40 pages. But what is glory of God? It's the beauty, the power, 
and the honor of God. It's a quality of God's character that emphasizes His greatness and authority. So it points to something that is internal. It points to something that is internal. It's the possession of God. It is who God is. It's the beauty of God. It's the essence of His of His holiness. Secondly, it is that which emanates from God's holiness. A glory has the idea of revelation. It's when you go outside and you see the sunbeam, you see you feel the heat of the sun. You you see the brightness of the sunbeams. But that's not the sun. It, it's what emanates from the sun itself. Well that's the glory of God. What what comes from God, what is revealed from God. And thirdly, it is what the saints give to God. We give God glory. Right? We we by praise, by obedience, by worship, we actually give God glory in this world, in this earth. By our behavior, by our speech, by our conduct, we magnify God. You know, we, we make much of God. Like the world, they don't care about God. They don't care about Jesus. They don't care about the Bible. For us, we make much of Him. We, we live to esteem His name. We live to give Him honor that is due who He is in His essence. Well, I want to close by talking about the third part. The believer's privilege and responsibility to glorify God. The first two belongs to God. But the third is our privilege and our responsibility. It is our privilege to reveal to this world the right view of God. By our lives, by our testimonies. It is our responsibility to raise His stature among the peoples. It is by our, it's our responsibility to bring, to bring praise and honor to God by our lives. 1 Corinthians 10.31 Whether you eat or drink, even the mundane things. It's not just on Sundays. You know, not just singing and preaching and ministry. But when you're eating at Carl's Jr., you know, when you're having boba, right? Even those mundane, thoughtless things, we do it for the glory of God. Colossians 3.17 Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Believers are to reflect God's beauty to this world. 2 Corinthians 3.18 And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into His likeness with ever increasing glory. Well, now the question is, how do we reflect God's beauty, God's holiness, and God's glory to this world? Well, let me submit to you three ways. And there are many ways for us to glorify God. But these three ways are the things that are in my heart right now. April 18, 2004. This is what I endeavor to do in my life. This is the applications that I come away with in studying this passage and I share them with you. I submit them to you. The first way to glorify God is to see life and everything in it in relation to the glory of God. To see life and everything in it in relation to the glory of God. And the place to start, I will submit to you, is in your workplace. Is in your workplace. 
to view one's work in light of God's beauty and glory. And Piper really pointed me in this direction. He, he wrote, quote, The task of Christian scholarship is to study reality as a manifestation of God's glory, to speak about it with accuracy, and to savor the beauty of God in it. Now let me, repeat, let me read that one more time. The task of Christian scholarship is to study reality as a manifestation of God's glory, to speak about it with accuracy, and to savor the beauty of God in it. So, if your occupation is astronomy, chemistry, maybe teaching biology, teaching mathematics, maybe you're working in sales, you're working in a factory, you're working for the county, maybe you're a musician, maybe your career is to sing, maybe it's a manager over people, or maybe you're a housewife, raising children, a lawyer, a doctor, a teacher, you're a computer programmer. You glorify God by seeing that God created this for His own glory. That you work not just to make money, not just to make ends meet. No, your pursuit in life, what you see is to see reality and to connect it with the beauty of God. We are to see our work in relation to God. God who created it. God who sustains it. God who gives it all the properties. God who is the originer, origin of all these things. That is our work. A.W. Tozer said, A Christian is mature when he sees everything from God's viewpoint. The ability, the ability to weigh all things in the divine scale and to place the same value upon them as God does is the mark of a mature Christian life. God sees all things and penetrates the true meaning of things. The immature Christian looks at an object or situation, but because he does not see it through God's eyes, he is elated or he is cast down by what he sees. The mature Christian is able to look through things as God looks and think of them as God thinks. He insists on seeing all things as God sees them, even if it humbles him, even if it exposes his ignorance to the point of real pain. So, first place to start is our work. To see God's glory in it. Therefore, whatever we do, to do it with excellence. That's why Puritans, I mean, their craftsmanship endured to this day. The chairs they made, the furniture that they created, were, were work, works of masterpiece because they were doing it for the glory of God. Shoddy workmanship was not part of their character. Well, likewise with us, whatever we do, whether we're a housewife, or a teacher, a computer programmer, we're in sales, whatever we do, we're to do it with all our might. We're to do it with beauty, with excellence, because we're doing it for God's glory. Edward said, you know, he had his resolutions. I think he had 60 some odd resolutions. Resolution 6, resolved. 
to live with all my might while I do live. Because his life was for the glory of God. So the first way to glorify God is to see our workplaces in the light of God's glory. Second way to glorify God is spiritual growth. Spiritual growth. John 15, 8. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit. This is to my Father's glory. When believers grow, when they bear fruit, they glorify God. So the issue is not how long have you been a Christian. The issue is not are you a mature Christian or immature Christian. That's not an issue. The issue is not how many books have you read, how many retreats have you gone to, or what ministries are you serving in. That's all external. The issue is, right now, today, are you growing as a believer? Are you bearing fruit for the glory of God? Either you are growing or you're digressing. It's either or. You know, I read in Yahoo.com this week, right? A lot of illustrations of Yahoo.com. The tallest living man alive wants to stop growing. Anybody seen seen this link? Nobody has Yahoo as their front page? Okay. (laughs) At the age of 33, Leonid Stadnik from Ukraine, wishes he would stop growing. He is 8 feet and 4 inches. He weighs 440 pounds. Uh, To sleep, he puts two beds together lengthwise to sleep in his room. And he is distraught because he's still growing. Every three months, the doctors measure him and he's still growing. Well, you know, Spiritually, that should be the norm for all believers. Believers should keep growing through all the stages of their lives. College, singles, young adult, married with children, right, in a wheelchair, whatever. Right? We should just always be growing. Why? Because everything is for the glory of God. And Christ said, bear fruit for the glory of God. He should be like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season his leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. It is normative for believers to grow. Lack of growth is abnormal. It is, it is unbiblical. It is discouraging. I mean, think about it, parents. You know, if Elizabeth was still in pebbles like five years from now, I'd be discouraged. Right? I'd be distraught. Right? I mean, how, how disheartening would that be? Well, is God disheartened by you because you're still an infant as a believer? You're not growing? John Stott calls spiritual growth a believer's responsibility. He says, The great privilege of the child of God is relationship. His great responsibility is growth. Everybody loves children, but nobody in his right mind wants them to stay in the nursery. The tragedy, however, is that many Christians, born again in Christ, never grow up. Others even suffer from spiritual infantile regression. Our Heavenly Father's purpose 
is that babes in Christ should become mature in Christ. Our birth must be followed by growth. Or the final way we can glorify glorify God. Be as happy as you can in God forever. Be as happy as you can in God forever. Being unsatisfied, discontent, unfulfilled, robs God of His glory. Robs God. Defames the name of Christ. If you are perpetually struggling like a broken CD, and your sharing is always about your lack of satisfaction in life, you are dishonoring the name of Christ. You are dishonoring the name that you wear as a Christian. I'll take for example, let's say, I take my wife out on a date. I plan this date for weeks. I get all dressed up. I buy her a new dress. We go out and we go to Laguna Beach to take a walk on the sunset. I planned it out. Perfect time. I went to weather.com and found out when the sun is setting. Right? And, and I called the weatherman to make sure that there's enough clouds, but not so much that it would block the sun and take a nice stroll. And, and I, I just, you know, planted some flowers there along the shore. Right? And I pick it up just for her with her name on it. Give her flowers. And afterwards, we go up to Las Brisas, you know, and I, I give the, the guy, I don't know what he's called, but I give the guy like some bucks and he gives me a window chair and a window table right as the sun is setting. We have a nice dinner and I drive along the PCH, right, on the way home. And I go, I go sir, how was that? I, I got permission from my wife. I can use her. She said, oh, you know, I was cold, you know. <laughs> This dress is not my style. The flowers, I don't like the color. And I'm not into the sun, you know. <laughs> you know, and man, the food was no good. And I, had to come, I want to come home. Wow. Man, I would, she'd be dishonoring me, right? That'd be very hurtful, very un- offensive even, if after all of that, my wife was unsatisfied and was unhappy. Well, God in His perfect sovereignty has given you your life. Everything that you have and everything you don't have was in God's perfect sovereignty allotted for you and allotted for me and for us to be unsatisfied, to be discontent, to be perpetually unhappy and complaining is dishonoring to our Lord. When in fact, if you are a Christian, nothing is missing from your life. Nothing is missing from my life. If you are a Christian, we have everything. And then more. There is no reason to be unfulfilled, unsatisfied, unhappy. Edward said, the happiness of the creature consists in rejoicing in God, by which also God is magnified and exalted. The chief end of man is to glorify God, Piper said, by enjoying Him forever. 
the rejoicing of all peoples in God and the magnifying of God's glory are one end, not two. Let me repeat that. The enjoyment of God and the glory of God is one, not separate. Edward said, The end of the creation is that the creation might glorify God. Now what is glorifying God but a rejoicing at the glory God has displayed? Piper said, All theology is a heart for God. God is glorified most, not merely by being known, but by being enjoyed in the knowing and obeying Psalm 37.4, delight yourself in the Lord. Psalm 102, worship the Lord with gladness. Come before Him with joy. Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Joy is the privilege and responsibility of the believer. Now before I close, let me make one thing clear. It's not the joy as the world understands it. Right. See, non-believers, for, for, for them, joy is not having problems. Having everything they want is being filled with distractions. That's, that's fleeting, temporal joy. But they don't have the abiding, ever-increasing internal joy. Let me, let me explain this. You go to a non-Christian, and you will see externally, they're, they're very happy. They have a nice car, nice job, nice friends. Right? They're having a, a, a bottle of wine, going on vacation. They're just happy. You sit with them for two hours and you ask them questions. And you listen to the songs they listen to and you'll, you'll find out they listen to sad songs. I mean, depressing songs. Right? Why? Because you sit there long enough and you'll find out that their hearts are full of pain sorrow and anguish they're overwhelmed with grief the reason that they immerse themselves in entertainment with drugs and alcohol and and immoral living is because of the pain that is in their hearts they're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd but externally they're happy same thing with disobedient Christians they're living for this world they have a lot of toys and they frivol away in many pursuits and they look happy sit down with them and you probe their hearts because they don't know God and they're not cherishing Christ, there's no joy. But obedient Christians, externally, man, they're hard-pressed on every side. Right? That's my testimony. I, I met a brother this week, and how are you doing? Man, I'm dying, brother. You know? Man, it's been intense. We had a car accident. Our car got to- totaled a few months ago. We had a house guest, and they were, they were both ill, and Elizabeth was sick, and I had to prepare for Kazakhstan, and sleep on the floor, and long flight, and I'm back, jet lag, man, I'm just, it's tough. But I'm doing great. Man, I'm just, I'm just so happy. I, I'm, I'm not even like acting, it's just joy. Through it all, like, it was just joy. But that's, that's what Christians, that's their Christian's testimony. Right? Christ He's enduring the cross. He's being whipped, tortured, crowned with thorns on his head. But for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. This is what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 8-10. through 10. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but we're not in despair. We're persecuted, but not abandoned. We are struck down, but we're not destroyed. 
Later on in chapter 6, 9 and 10, we are known yet regarded as unknown. We are dying yet we live on. We are beaten but we are not killed. And he says in verse 10, we are sorrowful. I am full of sorrow externally because of all these things. But always rejoicing. I'm poor. But I'm making everyone rich. I have nothing. But yet possess everything. See, that's the joy of a Christian. Full of sorrow. But rejoicing. Poor. Making others rich. Having nothing. Yet possessing everything. And you know what, brothers and sisters? Our joy as Christians begin here. And this is what Edwards taught me profoundly this week. That joy never ends. It's an ever-increasing joy. Because God is eternal. We will never hit a peak, right? You know, in life, man, I reached my peak three years ago, right? Or maybe, I hope it's not for our married couples. Man, in our marriage, we hit our peak, you know, last month. It's downhill from here. And we fear, man, is it for as a Christian life? I'm going to reach my peak and... No, because God is eternal. Because God is a thrice holy God. Our joy begins here and it never ends. It's ever increasing. Our satisfaction peaks continually. Edward said, The enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. It only grows from here on out. One of his resolutions was resolved to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can. His, to be happy, his endeavor, his res- resolution was to be happy as he can in God with all the power, might, vigor, and yes, even with violence he would resort to violence so that he would be happy in God, be joyful, satisfied in the ever-increasing revelation of God's glory. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for the truth of Scripture and granting us a glimpse of your heart and a glimpse of your glory. And Lord, even a small taste of it this morning is um, water to a weary soul. It's joy to our hearts. Lord, it is our heart's cry and heart's delight. We were created for you. We exist for you. And our joy is in you. All other joys is fleeting, is temporal. It's like, it's, it's waste. It's, it's rubbish compared to the surpassing knowledge of Christ. Lord, may we, um, may we rejoice in you always. May we delight in your sovereignty, delight in your glory. Lord, we praise you that you are sufficient unto yourself, that you do not need something outside of yourself to be satisfied, but you are zealous for yourself, 
Lord, may that zeal for your glory consume us. May our lives be set upon you to exalt your name above all things. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.